For early Christians, the prologue to the Gospel of John inspired and demanded elaboration. Evoking Genesis, the prologue states, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. End quote. That's John 1, 1 to 3. The gospel continues a few verses later with, and the word became flesh and lived among us. John 1, 14. This is the core of incarnation or enfleshment, and it conveys a pairing of creation and redemption that plays an important role in various expressions of Christology and soteriology. John's references to the word or logos as with God in the beginning and as an agent of creation who later became flesh exploded expectations of a purely or simply human Messiah, one anointed by God for set purposes of reconciliation or rule understood in strictly historical scope. The Synoptic Gospels share in John's presentation of a thoroughly unexpected Messiah and the very range of activities and characteristics ascribed to Jesus of Nazareth in the canonical gospels confound in numerous ways. The gospels do not simply present Jesus as divine, rather they elaborate upon his humanity, even in its weakness and suffering. The gospels present Jesus's anger, sadness, fear, and of course, his death on the cross. For early Christians, the Gospels presented as much a challenge as an opportunity. How can one coherently affirm the eternal creator was born in time, lived, grew, and died a gruesome death? How can one coherently affirm the swaddled babe was before all ages governing the universe? This challenge was met with the affirmation that Jesus Christ as God incarnate is both fully divine and fully human. We will consider in a moment the difficulty of understanding how to conceptualize that full divinity and full humanity. First, it is worth noting that various thinkers, past and present, challenge in diverse ways one or the other, the full divinity or the full humanity of Christ. Orthodox responses articulated intricate metaphysical frameworks for apprehending the incarnation and developed specific grammatical strategies for describing the incarnation. These frameworks and strategies, however, never presumed comprehension of this singular reality. Instead, they regarded the incarnation as a mystery. Within a theological register, the category of mystery denotes what surpasses human intellectual capacities without somehow being counter or contrary to human reason. There is fruitful space for reflection between full comprehension and total incomprehension. Discovering comfort within that fruitful space is essential for Christological reflection. Any number of Christological errors arise from the presumption of or desire for greater comprehension than is possible or permissible. I want to stress this sense of theological mystery when investigating the incarnation in order to weave together related strands of reflection or inquiry. 
there will be three basic parts to my talk tonight. First, I hope to trace briefly some early Christological debates and questions, focusing initially on Irenaeus of Lyon. This tracing will culminate in discussion of the Council of Chalcedon's definition of the faith from 451, a definition that established Christological orthodoxy. Second, I will turn to Anselm of Canterbury's Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Human, and its articulation of a satisfaction theory of atonement. Having sketched Anselm's argument, we can reflect upon how the Chalcedonian formula underpins it. Third, I will offer a painfully concise summary of Thomas Aquinas on the incarnation's fittingness and on the good as self-diffusive. Along the way, I will make references or gestures to the astounding breadth of material not even hinted at here. I should also note at the outset that aspects of this topic are inescapably technical. I will try to walk slowly through the dark woods of technical terms and unfamiliar conceptual schemes. So part one, though contemporary challenges tend to question Christ's full divinity, some of the earliest controversies regarding the incarnation reflected an opposite impulse. A spectrum of second century thinkers argued that the word appeared in the flesh, but without possessing or being true flesh. The word's flesh was mere appearance or illusion. This position is known as docetism from the Greek verb dokain to seem or to appear. The impulse was noble, preserving the word's divinity. For docetus, the word could not be made flesh without ceasing to be divine or without somehow forfeiting impassibility, the inability to suffer characteristic of God. And they regarded the loss of divinity as absolutely untenable. The docetus reasoned the only way to preserve the word's divinity was for the word to appear in the flesh without taking on or becoming true flesh. The impulse was to separate the divine from the human realities of Jesus of Nazareth. Such a view preserves the word's immutability and impassibility, but at a rather high cost. Against the docetus, theologians such as Irenaeus argued for the concrete and historical particularity and actuality of the world's words flesh. Just as importantly, Irenaeus stressed with equal vehemence that this entailed no diminution to the word's divinity. So, Irenaeus of Lyon, who lived from about 130 to 200, devoted substantial attention to Christology in his lengthy work against heresies. Beyond refuting what he considered the impoverished hermeneutics of the heretics, Irenaeus articulated a strategy for approaching or reconciling the gospel claims about Christ, ranging from the grandest to the humblest. All these seemingly disparate statements refer to one and the same Jesus Christ. This becomes a crucial phrase in Christology, one and the same. Any attempt to divide Christ from Jesus, divine from human, as if the two cohabited or somehow existed in parallel, misses the point entirely. Irenaeus writes, quote, 
For Christ did not at that time descend upon Jesus, nor was Christ one and Jesus another, end quote. Irenaeus later elaborates, there is, quote, one Christ Jesus who came by means of the whole dispensational arrangements and gathered together all things in himself. But in every respect too, he is man, the formation of God, and thus he took up into himself the invisible becoming visible, the incomprehensible being made comprehensible, the impassable becoming capable of suffering, and the word being made man, thus summing up all things in himself." End quote. This clarification itself seems full of contradictions. The invisible made visible, the incomprehensible made comprehensible, the impassable made passable. How can these be maintained? Over the next centuries, multiple approaches arose in diverse attempts to explain how one and the same Jesus Christ could be eternal and temporal, impassable and passable, glorious and humiliated. The attempts culminated or found resolution in the Council of Chalcedon's definition of the faith, which established Christological orthodoxy. Doing so required precision, and precision required the embrace of technical terminology at play in theological debates. There are many points to make here, but it will be best to read a section of the definition and then to comment upon it. So here follows a fairly lengthy quotation, so bear with me as I read this. <clears throat> and so, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach to confess the one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and the same perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly human, of a reasoning soul and a body, of one substance with the Father according to the divinity, and the same of one substance with us according to the humanity, through all things like us except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father according to the divinity, and in the last days born for us and for our salvation from Mary the virgin God-bearer, according to the humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, understood in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, with the difference of the natures at no point removed through the union, but rather the property of each nature preserved and coming together into a single person and a single subsistence, not dispersed or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten God, Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets beforehand and he, our Lord Jesus Christ, taught about himself and as the creed of our fathers teaches." End quote. So, there is much to comment upon in this dense passage. The language of one and the same stands out, but equally evident are the attempts to ensure that affirmation of one and the same Jesus Christ does not invalidate, undermine, cancel, or somehow prevent any and all duality. How, though, to name what is one and what is dual? 
Chalcedon firms a single person, which in Greek is prosopon, and a single subsistence, hypostasis in Christ. While person and subsistence is one, Chalcedon affirms this one and the same Christ is understood in two natures. Nature might seem a more familiar term than subsistence. We often, in fact, speak of nature or natures, but not always in precisely the same way. The three Trinitarian persons equally and identically are the one divine nature. Each human being is a distinct and individual instantiation of human nature. Human beings share a common nature, but that common nature only exists in particular forms that, as particular instantiations, can never contain or express all the possible variations of human nature. So the formulas that emerge from the patristic period are that the Trinity is one nature in three persons, and Christ in the incarnation is one person in two natures. Chalcedon specified that the two natures, divine and human, were united in the one hypostasis or person of the word, the hypostatic union. The question was, how? The Chalcedonian definition qualifies the union as in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Grammatically, these phrases in the original Greek are four negative adverbs. So, when pressed to explain how the natures are united, the definition of Chalcedon stipulates four ways in which they were not united. This is not accidental. We should linger over these four negative adverbs. Without confusion indicates that the two natures, divine and human, are united to each other without becoming some new or third thing, a tertium quid, as it was known, a mixture of the two. Such a thing, such a tertium quid, would be neither properly God nor properly human. Likewise, without change clarifies that each nature retains what is proper to it. The union does not change the individual natures into new things. Without division prevents any split or splintering of the whole. The two natures are truly united in the one person of the word and do not divide the person of the word. Finally, without separation eliminates anything less than a true union, any mere juxtaposition or indwelling, or show of favor. These four negative adverbs guard against what were considered pernicious Christological errors, misguided attempts to comprehend fully a theological mystery. At the same time, the very grammatical form of these adverbs aims to preserve that theological mystery as mystery. Ask precisely how the two natures are united in one person the definition confidently responds, not in this way, not in that way. The Greek term translated as definition is horos, which can also mean limit. The Chalcedonian formula defines or sets boundaries around the permissible field of reflection. The space for orthodox reflection or speculation on the incarnation is constrained by Chalcedon, but the definition serves 
as a generous restraint. If we imagine the definition as a fence, we can maybe clarify this. Fences can keep things out or in, and for various reasons, not all generous. But if we imagine something where a fence preserves us from air, where it's on a plateau uh, with children running around at night, and it prevents someone from falling off the edge, then you can understand the generosity of having a boundary that restrains you could also think about this as like a guardrails on the highway. You need something to constrain against certain errors. We can summarize the gains at this point as follows. Chalcedon affirmed that one and the same Jesus Christ is the one person of the word or logos existing in two natures, the divine nature and human nature, united without change, confusion, division, or separation. Subsequent centuries would bring further elaborations or specifications of the consequences of the Chalcedonian definition. These elaborations and specifications answered new challenges arising from various criticisms of Chalcedon by so-called non-Chalcedonian or Miaphysite Christians. This is just a, a brief detour, if you'll forgive me. So Cyril of Alexandria, emphasized that unity and identity through the confession of one nature, Miaphusis, of Christ incarnate. Cyril died some seven years before the Council of Chalcedon, but his followers were divided as to whether the Chalcedonian formula confirmed or deviated from Cyril's Christological convictions. Cyril's phrase, one nature, Miaphusis, of Christ incarnate, was his own way of trying to preserve one and the same Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, debate shifted from the expression miaphusis to other terms or categories to express the asymmetrical unity and duality in Christ. These terms or categories included the number of energies and operations or activities in Christ. Debates about these categories came to be known as the monenergist or monothelite controversies. The Third Council of Constantinople settled these controversies in 681 by affirming in Jesus Christ two natural energies and operations. Constantinople III argued for two energies and operations because energy and operation pertain to nature rather than to person. In other words, Chalcedon established a basic logic according to which whatever pertains to person was one in Christ and whatever pertains to nature was dual. Among other things, this Chalcedonian logic allows for a robust scriptural hermeneutic. I wanna stress this because some would read the Chalcedonian definition with a degree of weariness or even suspicion. The gospels do not employ the language of hypostasis or phusis. So why are these appropriate or licit terms? When asked why he resorted to non-biblical terminology, the third century theologian Origen of Alexandria quipped that it was because heretics were always finding new ways to misread the scriptures. A similar idea pertains here. The Chalcedonian definition serves as a guide to reading scripture rather than an external overlay or imposition. How does one reconcile the lofty and lowly affirmations of Christ in the New Testament? The Chalcedonian definition and its subsequent elaborations provide a conceptual framework 
for such work of reconciliation. The conceptual framework is in some sense metaphysical and in some sense linguistic. The definition of Chalcedon affirms that the property of each nature is preserved and comes together in a single person. This can seem to stretch to the breaking point our normal ways of speaking, and if not recognized precisely for what it is, can result in confusion or apparent contradiction. <clears throat> the idea came to be known as the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of properties. The communicatio idiomatum allows for expressions such as God suffers without conceding that the divine nature is passable. So how? This goes back to our earlier consideration of nature and person. The person is the underlying metaphysical and grammatical subject of the natures. This means that whatever is true of either nature can be said of the person. What this does not mean is that whatever is true of one nature is true of the other nature. So what does this look like in practice? The divine nature is impassable, and so in some obvious sense, God is impassable. Nonetheless, in virtue of the incarnation, it is permissible to say God suffers or God is passable because the subject God in these expressions is the fully divine person of the word bearing a passable and suffering human nature. It is impermissible to say God the Father suffers or that the divine nature suffers. Affirming that God suffers does not mean that the divine nature suffers, that every divine person suffers, or that the divine person of the word suffers in respect to divinity. We say Christ suffers rather than that Christ's human nature suffers, strictly speaking, because we ascribe suffering to the person rather than simply to the nature. Human nature is passable or capable of suffering, but common human nature does not act or suffer. Individuals do. Complex rules develop to govern what can be termed concrete and what can be determined, termed abstract predications. I will not delve into those here, but is, it is important to note this as a crucial distinction. With this background exploration of Christological orthodoxy and the hypostatic union complete, we can now turn to Anselm of Canterbury's Curtius Homo. First, though, a few words about Irenaeus again. Irenaeus stressed the creation, the pairing of creation and redemption. The focus for Irenaeus rests on creation through the word according to a reasonable, logical, and orderly manner. The disorder of sin necessitated a reordering. And so who better than the word through whom all was created to restore that order? Irenaeus often uses more specific imagery to focus on the reformation or recreation of humanity through the incarnation. He presents the logos as the model or exemplar for the creation of humanity, stamping or forming that lump of clay like a seal on wax. Exposed to the elements, say for example, the heat of the sun or of sin, the wax softens, begins to lose its form and shape. How can the likeness impressed upon the form at creation be restored, bringing back the original model to reform the likeness where it is deteriorating? This approach perhaps aids in understanding an incarnation, but it hardly clarifies why the story of the incarnation, why this reformation of disordered humanity 
would include the crucifixion. Anselm sought to sketch an answer. Anselm of Canterbury lived from 1033 until 1109. His work, Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Human, is a dialogue between himself and Basso. Curdeus Homo famously articulates a satisfaction theory of atonement. Anselm's satisfaction theory of atonement frames sin and redemption as a transaction between God and humanity. The significance of a satisfaction theory rests in part on what it denies or refuses. One common idea or image from earlier centuries focused on human beings as in legal servitude to the devil through sin. The payment was death. According to this framework, Christ as sinless did not owe the debt of death, but freely chose death. As Christ's soul descended to hell, Satan saw it and greedy for that prize, unjustly grasped or snatched at Christ's soul. By overstepping the just bounds of all sinful souls, uh, Satan's envious act thereby undid all previously held rights, ending the legal servitude. Satisfaction theory also differs from another and later theory known as penal substitution theory, according to which a penalty for sin was owed by humanity and that Christ could substitute for humanity in paying that penalty. Anselm's satisfaction theory employs some of the same terms and ideas, but changes it. The incarnation and crucifixion do not ransom humanity from legal servitude or otherwise offer payment to the devil or substitute simply for humanity. Anselm's treatise purports to demonstrate the necessity of the incarnation, but to formulate this demonstration while bracketing what is known about it from scripture. It is important to stress from the outset that Anselm's bracketing of scripture is questionable at best, and that it is generally clear that he does not intend to demonstrate the necessity of the incarnation in a vacuum, but rather to explore and to explain the reasonableness of the incarnation to those already disposed toward faith. Anselm is not trying to prove faith. Two justly famous phrases from Anselm reinforce this. The first is credo ut intelligam, I believe so that I may understand, or I believe in order to understand. And the second is fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. These well-known phrases indicate Anselm's abiding disposition towards theological reflection, especially on mysteries of the faith. So, Knowing that Anselm rejects redemption as a transaction with the devil and that he frames his investigation of the incarnation as an exercise in faith-seeking understanding, why is the incarnation a reasonable response to sin? Anselm takes it for granted that the incarnation responds to sin. The question is how and why this way? How does the incarnation answer the problem of sin? Were there not other and easier ways? At its most fundamental level, Anselm characterizes sin as arising from and through disobedience. The proper remedy for this ill, the most effective means for repairing the harm of disobedience is through obedience. Obedience cannot be restored through an intermediary. Humanity disobeyed and humanity must obey.
This simple observation leads to a complex series of reflections. Anselm's argument can seem deceptively simple when viewed from a schematic perspective, but for all his efforts to construct a carefully, uh, carefully a linear and logical argument, Anselm's courteous homo resists simple summary at almost every turn. That speaks against treating it here, but there are other and good reasons to do so. If for nothing else, Anselm's courteous homo is a giant upon whose shoulders subsequent texts and authors have stood. It remains a pivotal work and unsurpassed within its own parameters. Anselm sets forth three basic premises that uh, uh, frame his entire argument. And I wanna spell those out here quickly. The first is that human beings were created for happiness and that this happiness cannot be possessed in, in this life. He later specifies that, quote, rational nature was created just in order to be happy through enjoying the supreme good, end quote. His second premise is that happiness requires the remission or forgiveness of sins. The third premise is that no one passes through the present life without sin. These premises or conditions set the basic parameters of the argument. Since human beings were created for happiness, abandoning sinful humanity to its own condemnation, misery, and despair would thwart the divine intention in the very creation of humanity. Again, we see a pairing of creation and redemption. Were humanity not to achieve its created end of happiness in the enjoyment of the supreme good, the plan of creation would be disordered. Restoration of fallen humanity does not merely serve the good of humanity, but also of the larger providential plan of creation. The first two premises or conditions clarify this. The third premise frames the difficulty of restoration. Human beings mired in sin cannot themselves achieve restoration, but at the same time, obedience cannot be restored by another. To clarify this, we can take a detour through Anselm's understanding of sin. Anselm remarks, quote, to sin is nothing other than not to give God what is owed, end quote. So what is owed to God? According to Anselm, absolutely everything, every thought, every action, everything is owed to God. God does not need anything from human beings, but human beings receive and need everything from God. This all-encompassing dependence means that what we think and do and are is owed to God. Through the disobedience of sin, humanity fails to give God what is owed. This failure creates a debt. Anselm specifies this as a debt of honor. Failure to give God what is owed dishonors God or even robs God's honor. The theft does not truly damage God or diminish God's actual honor. That would be impossible. It damages and diminishes humanity, which becomes mired in its own disobedience and debt. The crime cries out for punishment to maintain justice, and death restores justice by punishing sin. Yet, that preservation of justice through punishment does not re restore humanity to its intended end. Anselm amplifies the problem by reflecting on the magnitude or enormity of sin 
and on humanity's inability to repay even the most trivial of debts. We can begin with human inability. Since humanity owes everything to God, there is no reserve, nothing extra that humanity could ever give to repay a debt. Again, it matters not how minuscule the debt, all that could be given is already owed. The debt of honor from human disobedience is in addition to and in excess of what is already owed. But what more could be given than everything? Sin lands humanity in an inescapable predicament, even at its best. The situation, however, is far worse, and for two reasons. The first is that repaying the debt of honor requires something greater, aliquid maios, than the stolen honor. Simple restitution, even if possible, would not suffice. Giving back what was stolen could never alone suffice. It would not respect or reflect the harm of the theft itself. That harm can only be righted. Humanity can only be restored by something greater. The second reason why the human condition is so dire concerns the enormity of sin. To convey this, Anselm sets up a thought experiment. Imagine a scenario in which all of creation, all that exists other than God, were in jeopardy of perishing and of being brought to nothing. Imagine further that you could prevent this dissolution of all creation, that you could preserve all that is in existence with a single glance in one direction. Now imagine further that God commanded against that single glance. Well, what is worth more? For Anselm, it is absolutely clear and definite. Real obedience is a rational being freely willing the divine will. Disobeying the will of God with the merest glance is far worse than letting creation fall into nothingness. Stated otherwise, the value of God's honor exceeds the value of all creation. So what is the magnitude of sin? It is more than the whole of what is. That is the debt owed. Reassembling these points, we can grasp the fundamental problem as Anselm sees it. The disobedience of sin has created a debt of astounding magnitude. Restoring humanity and fulfilling the created order requires paying this debt through obedience. Humanity already owes everything to God and lacks any resources for paying the smallest of debts. This debt steals God's honor, which is worth more than the world. If humanity cannot pay the smallest of debts, how could it ever repay a debt of such magnitude and to repay it with something greater? In fact, what is something greater than the universe? The first glimmer of hope comes when Anselm acknowledges one circumstance in which a human being could offer something in excess of what is already owed. A sinless human being would not owe death. Were there a sinless human being who could voluntarily accept death in obedience to the divine will, that act of voluntary acceptance would exceed what is owed. In the technical terminology, it would be a supererogatory act. Even granting this hopeful acknowledgement, there still remains Anselm's premise that no one passes through this life without sin and that even such an act would face the hurdle of providing something greater than the debt of sin, a debt of greater magnitude than the universe itself. 
since nothing within the universe could be greater than the whole of the universe, the only agent with the capacity to offer something greater is God. God bears infinite value, and God's omnipotent acts surpass all limits. God's omnipotent acts are something greater than creation as a whole. The conclusion to draw from this is that God and God alone is able to make satisfaction for humanity's debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin. Though this seems reassuring, the catch is that only humanity ought to make satisfaction for the debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin. Only a sinless human being could produce the supererogatory act, but no human act could equal the something greater owed. Anselm's reasoning brings his dialogue partner, Bazo, to the brink of despair, and only then, when confronted with the abyss separating divine ability and human obligation, does Anselm reveal the unimaginably clever solution. The only possibility for satisfaction, given these constraints, is the deus homo, the God-man. Again, Anselm is bracketing scripture, and so employing the expression deus homo rather than naming Jesus. One and the same individual must be fully divine and fully human. The only way for this to happen is for two natures to be united in one person. Here we can return to Chalcedon and reflect on the power of the Chalcedonian formula and approach. For Anselm, satisfaction for sin and the restoration of humanity are only possible given something like a Chalcedonian Christology. Everything hinges upon this. Any Christology that did not preserve the full divinity and full humanity of Christ could not meet Anselm's standards for ability and obligation. Chalcedon affirms the property of each nature preserved in the hypostatic union. The properties of human nature include passibility and the ability to suffer, though death is not natural to humanity in its sinless state. Human nature does not require death, but the, requir the requirement followed as a consequence of sin. Yet even prior to the fall, human nature had the capacity to be passable. The significance of this is that the person of the word could assume a perfect human nature, perfect in the sense of without fault and complete, that would not suffer of necessity as a punishment, but that could suffer according to the word's will. At the same time, the word remained fully divine, and Christ possessed the divine nature with its infinite value and omnipotence. As Anselm notes, the Deus Homo is omnipotent and can freely die in obedience to give honor to God. The life and person of the Deus Homo are of infinite value, are more lovable than sins are odious. The free gift of this life surpasses all sin. The free gift of the Deus Homo's life is something greater than the debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin and allows for human happiness while preserving divine justice. There could be no happiness without justice. There could be no justice without satisfaction. There could be no satisfaction without the Deus Homo freely willing death as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The inevitable conclusion for Anselm is that a purely rational analysis reflects or supports the revealed dispensation namely that the person of the word or son became incarnate for the sake of human salvation, employing the infinite divine power to pay the debt of sin through a free sacrifice of infinite value. 
Anselm's argument is far more intricate than summarized here, but this provides some sense of the arc of the Curdeus Homo. Anselm presents the incarnation as necessary for human salvation, given a specific framing and in an attempt to demonstrate the reasonableness of the incarnation. I'm going to move on now to the third part, and this will be quite a bit shorter. So Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274, begins his Summa Theologia's analysis of the incarnation with a question whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. The category of fittingness, or convenientia, plays a crucial role in the Summa's Christology, allowing Thomas a means for exploring and explaining the wisdom of the incarnation. This, in a sense, reprises aspects of early debates about the incarnation, as well as Anselm's reflections on the reasonableness of the incarnation. In defending the incarnation's fittingness, Thomas makes reference to Paul's famous text from Romans 1.20, that the invisible things of God are made known through the visible. The incarnation makes visible God's goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. These four categories all play important roles in Thomas's Christology, beginning with goodness. Thomas clarifies fittingness in two basic ways. First, the fittingness designates what corresponds to the very nature of something. Let us linger over this for a moment. I'm going to skip over some examples in the nature of, uh, in the interest of time, but hopefully it's pretty clear the, the idea of this. Things do what fits or follows from their nature. The very nature of God is goodness. And Thomas argues, quote, it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others. It's from the Summa Theologiae Tertiapars 1.1. Becoming incarnate reflects the fullest self-communication possible and so is perfectly fitting to God. The idea of the good as self-diffusive is a medieval development of earlier views, Neoplatonic Christian views, especially from Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, and we could talk much more about him. When applied to the incarnation, it reprises an idea already seen in Irenaeus, namely the pairing of creation and redemption. The foundational self-communication of divine goodness is the act of creation from nothing. Created reality exists insofar as it participates in the gift of being. And the diversity of created realities existing within an ordered whole reflects divine goodness and wisdom. The second basic manner in which Thomas presents fittingness concerns how something is done. Thomas addresses this when questioning whether the incarnation was necessary for human restoration. His reply is that yes, the incarnation was necessary for human restoration, but only in one sense. It was not an absolute necessity or a sine qua non. No absolute necessity could constrain divine omnipotence. God could have restored human nature through other means. And this point is crucial. Thomas also acknowledges a second sense in which something is necessary for achieving an end. In this second way, things are necessary when they allow for the end to be achieved, quote, better and more fittingly. Thomas provides the example of a horse as necessary for a long journey. The journey could be made on foot or even by crawling, but the journey would be much easier by horse. 
a horse is not absolutely necessary for a long journey, but the journey can be made better and more fittingly with a horse. For Thomas, the incarnation was necessary in that it represents the best and most fitting means for the restoration of humanity. Thomas expands upon this by listing five ways the incarnation promotes the furtherance in the good and five ways it promotes the withdrawal from evil. The fittingness of the incarnation reflects the divine wisdom in communicating the fullness of the divine goodness most efficaciously. The incarnation was not absolutely necessary for human restoration because God's omnipotence labors under no constraints. There had always been an understanding that the incarnation resolved the problem of sin, and the question had traditionally been how it did so and why it was the appropriate resolution. In Thomas's framing, it was fitting according to God's nature, but not necessary according to God's nature. It was necessary in the sense of fitting because it best promotes humanity in the good and removes humanity from evil. The incarnation's fittingness with respect to God as the self-diffusive good might seem to imply God would have become incarnate even had there been no sin. There are other reasons for suspecting this. In his treatment of grace, Thomas investigates extensively the workings of grace and its effects. Grace serves two basic functions, healing and elevating. Thomas distinguishes natural goods and supernatural goods. Accomplishing natural goods lies within the powers of human nature. In its created state, humanity would need no additional assistance beyond its natural capacities to accomplish these natural goods. After the fall, however, sin damages human nature impairing its natural capacities for accomplishing these goods. Grace heals human nature by working within the human will to make it effective in willing natural goods. Grace heals by restoring human nature's intended capacities for willing the good within the scope of its natural parameters. Grace also elevates. Thomas's point here is that the life of blessedness, the beatific vision of God, exceeds natural human capacities. Humanity is created for and called to an end above itself. Achieving that end requires the elevation of grace. Grace elevates the human will as a cooperative cause of this supernatural effect. Humanity could never achieve this supernatural end of the beatific vision without grace's elevation. So grace heals or restores, but it also elevates. The highest communication of grace unfolds with the incarnation, with the assumption of human nature into a hypostatic union. Had there been no sin, there would have been no need for grace to heal or restore fallen humanity. Had there been no sin, grace would still have been necessary for the elevation of humanity to a supernatural end. Scholastic theologians took great interest in examining questions from many angles, and this led to a host of counterfactual questions or hypothetical questions. One such question was, would God have become incarnate had there been no sin? Some argued yes, and this position has come to be associated with a number of Franciscan theologians. Exploring these views and arguments would take us too far afield, so please let it suffice for now to note that some argued God would have become incarnate had there been no sin, 
but would not have become incarnate in a passable form and would not have suffered. Thomas agrees with many points in favor of such, such a conclusion. His remarks on the necessity of elevating grace apart from sin and on the self-diffusion or communication of divine goodness reaching its zenith in the incarnation might easily suggest that God would have become incarnate apart from sin. Thomas, however, prefers a more reserved approach. He affirms that God could have become incarnate apart from sin, but he argues it is better to say God would not have become incarnate had there been no sin. His reasoning is that scripture everywhere presents the incarnation in relation to sin. Scripture provides no warrant for speculation into theological mix mysteries or to counterfactual scenarios since human beings cannot comprehend or predict what depends solely upon the divine will. For Thomas, this question is not about God's nature or about human needs in other circumstances. It is simply about the permissible limits for human speculation about theological mysteries. What this all means is that when confronted with the question why God became human, Thomas lists a wealth of reasons. Some reasons relate to sin, others do not. The existence of reasons for the incarnation apart from sin, however, does not warrant affirmation of what God would have done had there been no sin. For Thomas, one must instead humbly wonder at the mystery. <laughs>